0: Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, and uh, as we continue our studies in the life of Christ, and we just started an introduction to the uh, Sermon on the Mount last Sunday, and uh, we're going to look at the uh, first beatitude this morning, uh, verse 3, the message entitled Blessed are the poor in spirit, again based on Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 3. Now, the Beatitudes can be understood in at least four ways. First, they are a code of ethics for the disciples and a standard of conduct for all believers. Secondly, they show the difference between kingdom values, that is, what is eternal, and worldly values, that which is temporary. And third, the difference between the superficial faith of the Pharisees and the real faith that Jesus Christ demands. And fourth, they show the Old Testament expectations that they will be fulfilled in the New Kingdom. Now, understand these beatitudes—they're not pick and choose. They're not going down the list and okay, I can live without one. And I can, no, but this one here, this is too. No, they're not pick and choose. It's not pick the ones you like and then ignore the rest. They're a package deal. It's all or nothing. And they describe what we should be like as Jesus' followers. And each beatitude tells us how to be blessed by God. So let's look at the first beatitude in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now the first seven beatitudes deal with holy behavior. The last two deal with being persecuted because of holy behavior and any of those any of those that will seek to live right righteously for god they will be persecuted they will bear against some kind of persecution Uh, we will see that word or this word here blessed many times in the beatitudes but you'll also find the word blessed in, in several other places all through the bible now blessedness which we need to understand what it means it means more than happiness and a lot of people think and christians think that that God saved us and, and, and to be happy. God's number one concern is our happiness. Well, you won't find that taught in the Bible. God's number one concern for your life and my life is holiness. And you know what? If we're living holy lives, we will be happy. It's when I find that I am truly in the, in the, in the you know, um, will of God and being obedient to His will, That's when I find I'm the happiest. But when I'm not, you know, I I know it, and I'm not feeling you know that that joy that I should in the Lord. So, again, like I said, blessedness means more than happiness. It implies the fortunate or or enviable state of those who are in God's kingdom. The Beatitudes they don't promise laughter, they don't promise pleasure. They don't promise earthly prosperity. They don't promise good times. Being blessed by God means the experience of hope and joy that's not based on outward circumstances. To find hope and joy and the deepest form of happiness, then follow Jesus Christ no matter what the cost is. The way the word blessed is used in the Sermon on the Mount is not happy in the sense that I'm happy because everything is going well in my life. Because if, that, if happiness depended on that, I'd be up and down. But that's the way a lot of Christians walk. When things are going good in their life and everything is going smooth, they're happy campers. But the minute that, that, that trial comes or something that, that afflicts their life, down they go. It's going to be an up and down walk if my happiness depends upon my outward circumstances. But happy... In the, it means happy in the sense of the highest form of happiness and joy and blessing that somebody can have. Now, imagine how Jesus' crowd, how Jesus got the crowd's quick attention when he spoke his first word, blessed. He didn't say, hey, listen up. He said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word blessed was a fascinating word. That's why it caught their attention. It it wasn't like, you know, just what we might think it is. It was a fascinating word to those who were listening to Jesus that day on the mountain. You see, to them, it meant divine joy and perfect happiness. Because this particular word wasn't used for humans. This particular word was used to describe the land of joy and experienced only by the gods or the dead. So blessed implied a satisfaction that was eternal, I'm sorry, internal, a satisfaction that didn't need all outward circumstances to be good or happy. This is what the Lord Jesus has in store for those who trust in him. The Beatitudes explain the kind of attitudes that should be in our lives today. And Jesus offers the possibility of being truly happy and that this happiness can be theirs is how he started the Sermon on the Mount. Now, when you think about this, many people and even some Christians find it hard to believe that anybody could really be happy trying to live the Sermon on the Mount. It's the the, the way Jesus describes it. I mean, how could anybody live according to these demands, which seem impossible? And then how in the world could they meant to be to make people happy? It it just just seems like a, a contradiction. Yet the first and greatest sermon preached by Jesus Christ is the Sermon on the Mount. And it's, it, with its, uh, you know, again, it, the, the most uh, powerful message that he ever preached, uh, it starts with the unquestionable and repeated subject about happiness. Now, this is good news. It's, it's quite a great way to start the gospel of good news. The broadest meaning of the word had to do with an inward contentment that can't be changed by my outward circumstances. Because those are always changing. Now, that's the kind of real happiness that God wants me to have and you to have. He wants us to have that kind of happiness that isn't changed by our outward circumstances. It's a state of joy and well-being that has nothing to do with my outward circumstances. That is what's happening in my life. Paul said in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, he said, I've learned. Twice he says, I've learned. So see, it's a learned attitude. I've learned how to be content with whatever I have or whatever I don't have. He said, I, 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 I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. He said, I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether I, am a, I have a full stomach or empty, whether I have plenty or little. And here's why. He said, I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. That's the key. You see, blessedness is basically an attitude of God's character. It's one of his attributes. So when, you, when, when, when men take on his, nat, his nature, all right, through Christ, they share in his blessedness. So we can clearly see at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is talking about an experience that only believers can experience only believers can experience this beatitude that jesus is talking about other people they can see these standards and they can get a sample of the blessings of them but only those who belong to the kingdom have the promise of personally receiving and experiencing his blessings. now what does it really mean to be blessed well it is not a shallow feeling it is not some emotion of well-being, because everything is going good in my life. But it is a deep, supernatural experience of being content based on the fact that my life is right with God. Blessed it is based on fact-based truth and comes to life in the miracle of the new birth and partaking of His divine nature. Now, the requirement of the first beatitude, it says here, is to be poor in spirit. But what does exactly that mean? The word poor that Jesus uses here means <clears throat> it's the picture of a beggar cringing, a pauper, according to Strong's Concordance. It's the condition of being a beggar or the practice of begging. And here's the proper meaning it's the picture of a person in total poverty who squatted in a corner begging. He would hold one hand, hand out, asking for a handout. All right, while the other hand hid his face because he was embarrassed that somebody might see him and recognize him and he would be ashamed. You see, the word didn't just simply mean poor, but begging poor. And we see the example in Luke sixteen twenty. Remember, it was, it was used to describe the beggar Lazarus who was waiting for the crumbs to fall from the rich man's table. That's the picture here. The word spirit here has to do with the spiritual part of our life. It's poverty in the spiritual area that is spoken of in this first beatitude. So we need to understand that it is a straightforward statement that says a whole lot more than it suggests. We could say it like this. Blessed are those who recognize that they are beggarly poor spiritually and come to God for help. It's not just being poor spiritually. It's also recognizing that fact that I am poor spiritually, plus, and here's the key, key, uh, the key thing it's doing something about it, which is coming to God for help. To be poor in spirit is to recognize that you are totally destitute apart from God, which is not natural to do. To be in poor in spirit is to realize I have nothing, I am nothing. I can do nothing and I have need of all things that takes humility. But the slightest bit of pride will keep us from saying anything like that. It's the condition that I need in order to come for Jesus, come to Jesus for salvation. When one comes to this realization of their poor spiritual condition, their being poor in spirit, it will drive them to Jesus Christ for salvation. Because it it will cause him to realize he had for salvation, but must get everything that he needs from Christ. Now, on the other hand, there are three wrong meanings of poor in spirit. The first wrong meaning means it, it says a person is blessed because of their spiritual deficiency. That is honoring somebody's lack of spirituality. It would honor those who are backslidden and wallowing in sin. Oh, but I don't see any glory or honor in that. I don't see any blessedness in that. That wouldn't be a blessing. It would be terrible. It would be a curse. Poor in spirit isn't praising spiritual deficiency, but commending the fact that we recognize that we're spiritually lacking and then coming to the Lord Jesus for help. The second mistake of, of being poor in spirit is understanding poor in spirit to mean blessed for material poverty, being blessed for being poor. According to J.G. Butler, he said Francis of Assisi was the leader of this error in the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church taught that material poverty would bring spiritual blessedness, which is false because a person can be materially poor, but still be very wicked. All you have to do is look at many rescue missions to see this truth. Material poverty does not guarantee holy behavior. So the condition in this first beatitude is not being poor financially, but it's poverty of the heart. People can have material wealth, yet still be born uh, poor in spirit. Let's look at Abraham for an example. He was poor in spirit, yet he was very, very poor. You see, it has to do with the spirit and not the outward condition that beggarly poor character exists. It's the beggarliness with respect to the spirit in the inner man that's described here. It's not a poverty dealing with belongings, that is the lack of them. It's not being so poor, not having enough food, clothing, and other necessities of life. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that this kind of poverty is a good thing. The poor man isn't anywhere closer to the kingdom of God than the rich man. And there's no value or advantage in being poor. Poverty doesn't guarantee spirituality. Then the third error is the blessedness of false humility. Now, you you might be more familiar with this. Some people think to be poor in spirit means you have to be involved in outward acts of humility. In other words, you've probably heard people say, oh, I'm a nobody. Oh, I'm not really that. Oh, I'm nothing. When inside, they think they are. They insist on taking the back seats and saying, you know what? Oh, I'm not worth noticing. But you get the sense, oh, they're very proud. And they want to be noticed. And they want the best seats in the house, like those that are in the Lord's parables. You know, they took the best positions at the feast. That's the kind of pride that's even more disgraceful than the one that doesn't try to hide it. Sometimes we act humbly because we're, we're proud of a reputation of being humble. We sit in the back, hoping, hey, you know what? Come on, let's, let's go up. You, you should sit up in front. We put an angelic smile on our face when we're really annoyed because we're so eager to pass the test with the saints. An excellent example of the poor in spirit attitude is in Luke 18, where the publican, remember in the Pharisee, they were praying. The publican knew very well that he was wicked. Which is what poor in spirit is all about. Jesus said of the publican, he was stood far off. And that he wouldn't so much as raise his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast. And he said, God, he says, he says, be merciful to me because I am a sinner. And this showed that the publican recognized what it meant to be poor in spirit. And what he needed to do. Once he understood what it meant to be poor in the spirit. And then on the other hand, Jesus spoke about the Pharisee. The Pharisee prayed and he prayed with himself and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you that I'm not like extortioners and the unjust and the adulterers and especially that publican over there. He's pitiful. Thank you, God, I'm not like him. And because of the Pharisee's attitude. That Pharisee would never experience the blessedness of being poor in spirit. Then there was Isaiah who showed his poor in spirit attitude. It was after he saw the vision of the Lord. He said, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And you see, when you see God, you'll see your your wickedness. You'll see that you're poor in spirit. Then Job, at the end of his trials, showed his being poor in spirit. When he said, therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job 42.6. And then Gideon, one of the greatest judges of Israel, came from a poor family of judges. He showed what it was to be poor in spirit with his response to God about God calling him to deliver Israel from the Midianites. Gideon said, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest, weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. You see, Gideon was admitting a lot more than outward poverty here. Gideon was confessing his total unworthiness to be used by God to deliver the Israelites from their enemies. Peter showed what it meant to be poor in spirit in his response. Remember to one of Jesus' uh, fishing miracles when he multiplied the catch? After the miracle in Luke 5 8, Peter said this to Jesus Depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, the poor in spirit attitude is totally disdained by our flesh and the world. Why? It's not natural. It's not natural to be beggarly, poor in spirit. It's just the opposite. It, it's natural to be proud. To be selfish, that's my nature. The world looks at those who are poor in spirit, and the world thinks of them as being weak and having no confidence. And the apostates show how they dislike this beatitude when they talk about, oh, hey, wait a minute, now there's a touch of God in everybody. Now this kind of belief says that there's something good in our spirit. What did Paul say? There's nothing good about me. There's nothing good about man. But the beatitude says, this is not true. That there's a touch of God of everyone. Psychologists show how they dislike this as well, this poor in spirit attitude, when they preach their gospel of self-esteem. But there's nothing nothing in the arrogant self-esteem philosophy either that's the least bit related to being poor in spirit. These two attitudes are totally opposite in their meaning. The one is poor in spirit is a beatitude. The other is self-esteem, a bad attitude. And a lot of Christians need to go back to this first beatitude of the servant on the mount and forget all about the nonsense that's being spread in many Christian circles and by so-called Christian psychologists about this attitude of self-esteem. There is no blessedness in self-esteem because it's all of the flesh. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 12.3. Again, this is not my opinion. This is the word of God. Paul said in Romans 12.3, because of the privilege and authority God has given me, Paul said, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Don't esteem yourself higher than you are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given us. So how do we become poor in spirit? How do we develop the poor in spirit attitude? Since being poor in spirit is so, so important and so good, such a good thing, hey, we need to know how to get it. The answer is to focus on God and his word. When Isaiah saw God's glory, then he saw just how wicked he was and how poor in spirit he was. You won't become poor in spirit by looking at others and comparing yourself to them. In 2 Corinthians 10, 12, we wouldn't dare say that we are as wonderful as these other men who tell you how important they are, but they are only comparing themselves with each other, using themselves as the standard of measurement. He says, how ignorant. Howard Hendricks says that that comparison is carnality. When we compare ourselves to other people, Hey, their light is very dim compared to the bright light that's shining through me. I can always find somebody that, oh, man, uh, compared to him, I'm somebody. But you see, like Isaiah, when you look and you see God, you're nobody. There is no light in us when we stand in the the infinite light of God. We will see our lowliness. We will see our, our lack of spirituality. We will see our spiritual deficiency. When you get into the infinite brightness of the holiness of God and his holy word, you will cry out like Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am undone. In the brightness of God's holiness, every imperfection in me will be seen in all of its ugliness and all of its uh, wickedness. And like it says in the the scriptures, that there's nothing that's hidden. Before God, everything is exposed. Even the wicked thoughts that I, that I think I'm the only one that, that knows about them. Woe is me. Every imperfection in me is seen. And you'll say immediately, as Isaiah did in four six. he said, we are all infected and impure with this sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Our righteous deeds in God's eyes are nothing but filthy rags. If they're not done for the glory of God. Get into the Bible if you want to learn what this poor in spirit means. Get into the word of God. Look at the word of God. Look at the book of God that's about God. Read his law. Look at what he expects from us. Think about standing in front of him. It's also to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and to see him as we see him in the gospels. You can't really look at Christ without feeling your absolute poverty and emptiness. Now. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He says for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there is a reward for being poor in spirit. Jesus for theirs. Those who are poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. The word theirs in verse three tells us eligible for the reward there are only certain those that are eligible for this reward it tells us that this reward heaven is limited to only those who meet the requirement of the first beatitude of being poor in spirit the promised reward of the kingdom is theirs in the sense of theirs alone it only belongs to the poor in spirit it excludes everybody else who does not belong to this special class of the blessed. That is, those who approach God with a different spirit than that one of beggarliness. If I don't come and I don't approach the Lord with that spirit of beggarliness, I won't be of the blessed. There's going to be a lot of people who own a a piece of the heavenly kingdom, but they don't own a piece of the world's kingdom. The world's kingdoms are gained by wars and by crime and evil schemes and money. By pushing and shoving and trampling over people very crudely and rudely. But the eternal kingdom is gained by being poor in spirit. And this way of of obtaining a kingdom is definitely contrary to the way the world thinks. But you know what? It's the way God says it's to be done in his word. It's the way of character and of godliness. Godliness. But character and godliness are clearly not necessary to gain earthly kingdoms. The kingdom that is promised in this reward involves the messianic rule of our Lord Jesus Christ. And is to be seen that the blessed ones are not addressed here as subjects of the kingdoms, but as partakers in its rule. Scripture repeatedly speaks of high position, the high position of those who gain this kingdom in Revelation 1 6. It says that Christ has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.12, Paul said, If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Revelation 22.5, John said, They shall reign forever and ever. You see, these aren't the words of a subordinate. They're the words of a ruler. And what does it say? The scripture says, We will rule with Christ when we come back. At the end of the tribulation. For those who are are poor in spirit, Jesus said, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the word is, where it says theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the word is speaks of present tense. It's not the kingdom of heaven will be theirs. No, it is theirs now. The title belongs to the poor in spirit now. It's not in the future tense. It's like when you buy a new car. And you go, maybe you go out and buy it in the morning and you sign all the papers and you, you know, taking care of business. And and they say, you know what, we'll have it ready for you to pick up in a couple of hours. You know, they prep it, they wash it, they put gas in it whatever. So you go home. But even though you go home, that car still belongs to you. It's still your car. God is preparing the kingdom for its coming. But that doesn't change the fact that right now, it belongs to those who are poor in spirit. And you know what? It's a permanent reward. Because it's heaven, it's a blessing that's eternal. Now, the world's kingdoms, world, world's kingdoms they're, they're temporary, they're passing. And, and the world's kingdoms, they don't last. Now, men today who rule as kings and presidents and, and prime ministers or whatever their position might be, they rule for just a short time. And then they're gone. And their earthly position and the earthly kingdoms, they're gone. And today you look at history and many great kingdoms of the past, like Nineveh and Babylon, they're gone. They're nothing but ruins today. But the kingdom of heaven is Forever. The kingdom of heaven will never fall. It will never pass. It will never fail. And being permanent, it won't disappoint. It will always satisfy. So in closing, if there's one thing that's really clear about earthly kingdoms, it's how they're able to corrupt. All you have to do is just watch what happens to men when they move up in power and position in earthly kingdoms. They become more corrupt The higher they climb, kingdoms in business or whatever else it might be. But the heavenly kingdom, it doesn't corrupt, it purifies. The heavenly kingdom will have no laws that leave God out. Today, all kinds of laws are passed where God is left out. And that's why they're a mess, and that's why we're in the mess we're in. God is left out of the decision-making process. But in heaven, no laws will, will, will be where God is left out. Or there won't be anyone that's allowed to be wicked living in heaven. The heavenly kingdom will exalt God. It will exalt His word. And it will exalt holy character. This blessing of the poor in spirit is a very significant blessing. The honors that the kingdoms of the world give you, they're fading, they're passing, they're temporary. They're nothing to be compared to the honors given by the kingdom of heaven. The honors of the kingdom of heaven are, are so, so much greater, so far greater. And only high and holy positions in the kingdom of heaven will belong to those who are poor in spirit. You need to know what it is to be poor in spirit and you need to know what to do when you recognize you're poor in spirit and it is go to God. Father, we thank you so much for this one of the first Beatitudes, Lord. And Father, how appropriate before we can even go on to the rest. Recognizing I'm poor in spirit And then going to God for salvation. Because I cannot live these beatitudes in my own strength, in my own power, in my own human flesh. I need the Spirit of God. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. I need that Spirit to raise this old man from death to new life to spiritual life, to kingdom life, to supernatural life. And maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Christ is your Lord and Savior. And I pray that as we described what it means to be poor in spirit, that you, you admit to that. Lord, that describes me. I am poor in spirit. And I need you, Lord. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship right now. And this time is for you. God has spoken to your heart, and you recognize that this message describes me. It describes who I am. That I have nothing, I am nothing. I can do nothing. I need all things. And all things are found in Jesus Christ. Paul said, I'm complete in him. I'm in, I'm completing Christ. But Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. It takes humility to admit that. So as the worship team leads us in this song, you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisles towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song is over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.